Hi everyone, welcome back to Coffee with a Shot of Cynicism. I'm Eleni. I'm Jeffrey. And today we're discussing episode 419, After Boom. After Boom. We're discussing the after effects of the dinner from hell last week. Yes. Um, so, some of the things I was thinking about while watching the episode was what you asked me last week. Um, so, was Richard justified? Because mm-hmm. if you'll remember last week, the episode ended on us finding out that Richard went behind Jason's back and spoke to his father and got a deal to get Richard out of the business. Uh, and make the lawsuit go away. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of last week's episode, it's very clear that Richard is doing everything he can to kind of save his family. Yes. And yeah. And so I think last week my response was, I get it, but it's also very shady, right? Yeah. Like and it's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing that what's like, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, justified but also and uh, like justified but to a certain extent yeah it's justified to an extent so it's justified because richard sees his um you know his family in jeopardy and having to do everything he can to save his family but it's also you know well just cruel the way he cuts jason out of it after he told him that he trusts him to make it go away yeah and, and um, so you can kind of, at the end of last week's episode, I feel like you're thinking, I, I remember saying I was in shock that Richard would do that, mm-hmm. but, but the more, the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, I get it why he's doing it. It still sucks, but I still get it. Yeah. And then, so I had that in mind while watching this episode. And then this week's episode, I'm just like, fucking Richard. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I feel terribly uh, for Jason. Um, But, you know, but we're going to get into all of that. I was thinking, honestly, even though there's a lot of crucial events that do take place in After Boom, I was thinking that, like, this is the closest that season four comes to a filler episode. Would you agree? Uh, Yeah, I would agree. Um, Oof. I would agree, um, but I think the parts that do move the plot along are mm-hmm. very poignant. Yeah. So, yes, there are a lot of scenes that are there um, as filler, like you said, but I think that the ones that aren't are enough to kind of make up for them. Does that make sense? So, I've dubbed this episode the uh, episode of Confrontation. Okay. <laughs> Because we have Lorelai confronting Richard. Mm-hmm. We have Emily confronting Richard to a certain extent. Yes. We have Lane confronting the new foreign exchange students. I was going to say, first appearance of, of replacement Lane. Exactly. Which we'll get into. And then we have Ray having the balls, which I don't understand how, to confront her professor. Yeah. Um... So some of the confrontations, <coughs> excuse me, uh, more justified than others, I would say. Yes. Um, uh, some of them very weird, and I would never have the balls to do it. But uh, 
it is what it is. <laughs> is that is that referring to to Rory confronting Asher Fleming? Yes. Like for me, that if we want to get into it now, for me that was so out of character for Rory. Okay, maybe we should go chronologically. <laughs> I we'll go chronologically. It's been four so, years of yeah podcast. I don't know, but we still don't know what the fuck we're doing. Um, okay, <laughs> so, four seasons, but only two years. Remember that. Yeah, two years, I get it. Whatever. <laughs> um, okay, opening scene, we see Luke going to the mailboxes, etc., to get his, a mail-in divorce. Yeah, I was gonna say for his mail-order divorce. Mail order divorce. You've heard of a mail order bride. This is a mail order divorce. I kind of, I, think again, it's, I think it's justified. I think it's like justified and or uh, like on brand for Luke to get an, uh, a mail order divorce. Yeah, I think it just also proves how much how little he gives a fuck about his relationship at this point. Which because, makes sense because it was such a train wreck, such a garbage fire. <laughs> no, for sure, and I think. So there's two separate things. I think you can be upset about being cheated on even if you weren't 100% in the relationship, which it was clear that Luke wasn't. So I think Luke had checked out of his marriage. Luke is just in it at this point because he made a stupid, impulsive mistake of having a captain marry you on a boat, and now you're in it, so you have to make the best of it. Yeah. But his heart's Exactly. It's... It's hard, like, it's hard because he was obviously invested enough to get married in the first place in some, in some emotional state to get married. Yeah, but I mean, as a viewer, you don't really care because, well, you don't care for two reasons. You don't care, one, because, of course, you're still waiting for Lorelai and Luke to get together. But the bigger issue is, like, you don't care because they've done such a good job of villainizing Nicole by making her not very present. Yeah, exactly. That you're not just, you're just not invested in this relationship anymore. Well, like, oh, he's getting into we haven't screen. seen it. <laughs> well, yeah, we ha- it's been playing off screen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, even that, I, I think I said this last week, even a scene where I think they could have done a really good job last week. Um, it wasn't last week, it was the week before. But showing Luke's reaction to getting cheated on a prime time where you can bring in the actual person that's doing the cheating and they still didn't bring her in. Yeah. So like, I'm over it. I don't care. You go into that mailbox, etc., and get your divorce. Luke. <laughs> I'm thinking we should, we should invite Trisha O'Kelly who played uh, Nicole onto our podcast and like get the details of like why we didn't see Nicole very much during season four. I'd love to give input. Like, <laughs> I'd love I've been trying to do research to see why, um, you know, like we said, maybe she had another commitment, maybe it was something else, maybe she was, like, I don't know what the reason is. Um, I'd love to get her input to see, like, was she told something by the writers of, you know, we're going to go in this direction? Was it a complete flip? Like, I'd love to actually know what happened. Yeah, Um, I'm going to tweet her and see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Um, but yeah, so all that to say, Luke is getting a divorced. Laura's trying to give him his space. Kirk is now somehow a fucking notary. Jesus Christ. Is anyone surprised, though? Am I surprised that he's a notary? Is anyone surprised that Kirk is just pops up everywhere? I mean, it's fine to pop up and, like, work at the post office. But 
at least in Canada, it takes a little bit more to become a notary. Well, clearly not in Stars Hollow. All right. Well, you do you, Kirk. What do you want? <laughs> um, all right. So fast forward to Jason and Lorelai talking about um, Jason saying he's going to fix this. He's going to make the lawsuit go away. And he's on his way to the golf course, the driving range, to try and improve his golf swing so he can not embarrass Richard on the golf course. And something about this just breaks my heart. Yeah. Because Jason's like all in on this business, right? Like he sought Richard out. He wanted to work with the best is what he told Richard. And maybe, yes, part of it was like sticking it to his father. But you can tell he really respects Richard and wants to work with him. Yeah. Um, And after the bomb that was dropped last week, he's trying. He's very much trying to fix this, you know. Um, So when Lorelai tells Rory, like, oh, Jason's fixing fixing it and Roy's like well shouldn't you be the one to talk to your parents and she's like no no Jason's gonna fix it yeah well, talk to your fucking parents <laughs> I do have to say though despite the fact that I think this is kind of a filler episode even though there are a lot of elements moving the plot forward which is like the opposite of a filler episode I guess um I like I think there's a some kind of emotional growth journey that Lorelai takes all in one episode and it's all in this all in this one because she's like her usual quirky annoying immature self being like oh Jason's gonna fix it Jason's gonna do whatever I'm just gonna sit and be quiet because I don't like I don't want to be I don't want to have to confront anything or confront my parents most of all um and then it reaches a point where you know jumping ahead her father then says I'm like, you. of course you're siding with your boyfriend. I would expect nothing less of you. And you can just kind of see that it hits her like, oh shit, this is like, she knew it was serious, but it's like, she knows like, oh crap, I have to kind of woman up and realize and that that my choices affect people here. Um, and then, you know, I'll, we'll le- I'll put a pin in that because we're going to get to what happens after. But I think she just... She realizes that, you know, I'm I have to make real life adult decisions here about my family and my own life choices. Yeah, I agree. I think it starts very much with her, like, continuing to avoid the situation, mm-hmm. uh, which she does so well throughout the show. And then, yeah, like you said, I think when she realizes how serious things are getting, she says to herself, well, shit, now it's time to get involved. Um yeah. And I can't just continue to leave everything up to somebody else. Yeah. Um, I have to get involved because this very much involves me as well, you know? Um, I think she was, like, trying to hide from the fact that it involved, like, it, it, you know, she knew that it affected her, but she's like, I don't want it to. Like, it, it's not my business. But then she realized, like, it's her family and her family's, you know, welfare and life savings. So it's like, yeah, it kind of does affect me. Yeah. A little bit differently, but we'll talk about it when we get there. Um, okay, so we want to discuss the band talking about a gig that they're going to have on Friday. That was filler to me to some extent. <laughs> um, okay, so I think the discussion maybe in the beginning is filler, but I think the, the, the overall band storyline in this episode serves a bigger purpose. For, I think it's um, the purpose for Lane's story, uh, most of all. Well, yeah, of course. We don't give a fuck about the other bandmates. <laughs> um, well, no, I mean, Lane is very much the main character of this storyline, right? Yeah. And 
considering Lane had such a big plot point at, in the middle of the season and she had this big life moment happen with her where she left her mother's house and is having to figure out how to be an adult and live on her own, we've been kind of been given crumbs here and there with Lane's story, right? So yeah. I was happy in this episode to kind of get a bigger uh, plot point with her, even mm-hmm. if some of it was filler. Um, overall, I think the story was was poignant for Lane as well. Because in the beginning, we see her with the band discussing what the set list is going to be. The guys are very much like not giving a fuck playing video games. And finally, she's like, I'm going to the store. And he's like, thanks, mom. (laughs) And so even though that whole discussion may seem like a joke filler, whatever, I still think it's pretty important. Because in my head, I think Lane very much had a different idea of what living on her own and living without her mother was going to look like. Don't we all? Well, yeah, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) If you haven't moved out of your parents' house yet, get ready. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, no, but I think it's something that every young adult kind of realizes. um, When they move out, number one, you don't realize how good you have it at your parents' house sometimes. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's not the case for Lane, but I think there's definitely a part of her that's like, I didn't think... Um, like getting out from under my mother's control was going to go like this because now you have a whole other set of responsibilities Mm -hmm. that of course are not maybe as emotionally draining as changing your entire personality, but are still very much um, taxing on you. Right. Yeah. I think there's a whole other added layer to Lane's transition from moving like from moving out and living on her own for the first time because it wasn't like it was a it was a a choice she made you know with time to think about it and like okay now's the time for me to move out like no it was uh, she was given an ultimatum either you adhere to my rules because you're my child and or right. you or you go live like that somewhere else you know so it was so there's a whole there's the there's the usual like you know young adults uh I guess kind of depression of realizing oh shit this is really all there is. And then for Lane, you mm-hmm. add on top, you add on top of all of that of just the trauma, I guess, because you know, Mama, that's trauma. There's yeah. just a whole, other, there's, there's a whole other added layer of the trauma from you know having to leave home like she did, like she didn't really, not we know what's coming, obviously, because both of us have seen the show multiple times over. But at this point, like we, we, she and her mother haven't made peace yet, so it's like she she left and okay, cool, I'm gonna go, gonna go start building my life for the first time, which is stressful enough for anybody any, in any circumstance so especially in Lane's circumstance of being on bad terms with her parents like that's that's not easy no no of course not I mean it would be I mean even if you were still living with your mother and you're on bad terms that's traumatic enough mm-hmm. but then add to that having to now go without preparing living on your own and then Almost being in charge for the mm-hmm. first time in your life also, because men suck. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, she's literally having to babysit uh, Zach and Brian. Yeah. And they even say, like, thanks, Mom. I know that was meant to be a joke, but it's like <laughs> the burden is really falling on her. We saw her last episode go grocery shopping. Um, it was Zach's turn to go grocery shopping this episode, and he didn't go. 
Yeah. Um, so she has to kind of take the reins. Um, I think it's it's going much differently than she had anticipated. <laughs> yeah, and it's like for sure the whole there's for sure even another added layer of having to now mother her bandmates, which is you know gross and annoying on multiple different levels. Yes, exactly. But I would also I would also argue that. Lane is she's kind of I want to say she's like maternal by nature because it's you know a kind of a generalization on many points but like she's kind of she's kind of always had this loving nurturing like nature and I think maybe the bandmates take advantage of that especially later on like I'm thinking of many many different examples of this that happen in seasons five and six so like I think it's difficult, and I just, like, we, like, Lane Kim deserves so much better. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, this is kind of the beginning of the end for me with Lane. Especially um, because she just, you know, we know what happens, she, you know, gets married to that and has twins after having sex yeah. for one, having sex one time. <laughs> no, I mean, when I say the beginning of the end, not that I, like, fall out of love with Lane and her character, the beginning of the end in the sense that, like, I feel like at this moment, writers stopped caring, but caring as much as they used to. Um, and moving away from Lane as really being her own character in this show that has her own storyline to moving entirely to the Gilmore Girls' um, lives and stories and then being like, oh yeah, we also have Lane and let's pop in every once in a while and give her a storyline. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think they could have definitely tried harder after season four with Lane because they, like, that's why I think that's another reason why season four is my, my personal favorite because not only is it devoid of, you know, a lot of teen, uh, love triangle drama, but it's just like, Rory is commencing her own version of a young adult life and then we have another version of young adult life with Lane of you know she was rejected slash kind of disowned by her family for just being who she was and so we see that kind of trajectory which is very different from Rory's obviously and then I think they they could have gone in such a different direction like seasons five and onward with Lane because you know, we see we continue. Obviously, we continue to see Rory's coming of age because she's, you know, one of the title characters. But I think they could have done a bit of a better job with giving us more meat on the bones for Lane's story because it's just like they gave us a big showdown with her mom in season four, and then just more crumbs, more crumbs until we just ran out, like ran out of crackers. Like there's no there's no more crumbs, there's no more crackers. It just, <laughs> you know what I mean? No, I get it completely, and I I feel the same way. I think. I'm always disappointed when I look back on Lane's story, not just with the ending of season four, but as it progresses in seasons five through seven. Um, I'm always just like, you're the writers. You can write whatever you want. Why didn't you write something better? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I get it. She's not a main character. She's a secondary character. And you do obviously want to focus on the main girls. But it's just like, I'm it's still disappointing to see how it ends up. Um, yeah. Like you, like they could have given her a better secondary story. Like, exactly. they, like, like Lane is still in the starring cast in seasons five through seven. So they could of have course. given her some kind of recurring story arc better than the one that we saw. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. Um, but yeah, so the gig is on Friday. Um, 
Kirk is very confused by the flyer because it has a sandwich. As would I. As would I be like, okay, cool. Are there sandwiches at this at this concert? Yeah, I'm like, oh, if I get to get a free sandwich, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) But apparently not. Um, Yeah, I don't. Whatever. So they play the gig, and um, Lane. So before they play the gig, I'm sorry, Lane is working, and she sees New Lane coming out of her house. And she decides to confront New Lane. Yes, who doesn't have a name in this episode? Am I correct in As saying of that? Right now, doesn't have a name because Lane is very much um, outraged that her mother has replaced her. Yes. Um. So, as of this episode, doesn't have a name. Do you remember what her name is? I don't. That's why I'm like, I. Sh- what's her name? I was trying to remember throughout this episode, thinking they're gonna say it, and they didn't. <laughs> no, this episode they didn't. It's Kion. Right, okay, I knew that. <laughs> um, but Lane is very confused, because in just looking at it from afar, she sees her mother has a new young Korean girl giving her her sweater, her scarf, whatever, and then um, confronts her and says, why are you in my house? And we learn that she's there for three months as an exchange student, and Mrs. Kim took her in. And this, to me, is like, part of me is, I, I mean, I feel for Lane. I definitely yeah. do. Um, you know, it's, it's tough. It's tough after not having spoken to your mother for so long and moving all your shit out of her house to then say like, oh, am I that easily replaceable? You know what I mean? Um, but then then I also really don't see Mrs. Kim in this episode, except for that one little glimpse. I also really feel for Mrs. Kim, um, because it can be easy going, it can be easy knowing that your daughter rather move out than live with you. Um, yes. You know, and, you know, it's just, it, it, ooh, you know, uh, probably late. Well, we, we kind of get the sense that Lane's probably dropped out of college by now. And it's like, I think Mrs. Kim is kind of doing this whole, am I really that terrible that my child would rather move in? Actually, at this point, she doesn't know where she's living yet, but um, which I think makes it even worse mm-hmm. because you don't know what your child is doing, but they're doing it without you. So you're probably thinking, am I that terrible that they'd rather leave my house and never speak to me again? And she's probably very lonely, too. You know what I mean? Um, because her husband still supposedly exists, but is never seen. Yeah. Well, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> But yeah, like presumably she's all on her own right now, you know, after 19 years of living with her child. Um, so I get it. And I get that Lane is feeling very hurt as well. Um, but then this all comes to a head when she confronts her. And then later on, when the band is finished playing their set, everyone has somebody, right? Gil has his wife, Brian. And Zach invited all these girls, and Lane's just like, I have no one, and she's probably feeling very alone. Yes. Before before I give my thoughts on that, I wanted to return to what you said about um, Lane feeling like, oh, am I that am I that easily replaced? Yeah. And I have to say that I noticed something different um, interpreting that scene this time around compared to maybe a few years ago when I was younger, because I would I was totally. Like, I totally agree with with what you said about how you, you feel like, how can she not feel like, oh, I'm so easily replaced. Look, 
she found a new lane within however many months of leaving. But um, mm-hmm. now, like from a you know mid twenty something point of view, I kind of see it as like Lane wasn't that easily replaced because what Miss Kim was looking for was just some little complacent Korean Korean young girl who would make herself small and not and like not object to anything. And I think from like from from my perspective now, compared maybe when I was when I was nineteen, when I was Lane's age, I'm like. Um, actually no I'm not like that me and what's her name are not similar at all because we obviously we see later Lane influences her and (laughs) gives her all the secrets to being a rebel but like in this instance she is not like Lane is different like Lane kind of stands out from the crowd and what Mrs. Kim was looking for was someone who would blend in and not you know not cause a stir so I'm thinking like now (laughs) especially like as a, a queer person I would say like I wouldn't want to like I wouldn't want to blend in. I want to stand out. But when you're 19, 18, 19, obviously you don't have that really confidence yet. So um, it's hard. It's I get I get why Lane felt that way in this instance. But I'm thinking like um no I wouldn't want to be where replacement Lane is now. No thank you. Yeah no I I agree. I think part of it. So part of it is she's right. She just sees a young Korean girl who also has glasses. And is about the same height, just coming out of her mother's house. And she's like, what the fuck? She replaced me. Yeah. But then I agree. Like, as as time goes on, you're kind of seeing that. And for sure, that's exactly what Mrs. Kim wants, right? She wants a complacent lane. Um, her child couldn't follow the rules. She's going to find one that will, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I, I no, I agree with what you're saying. Um, <laughs> especially with later on when they become, when they both become rebels, you know? Yeah, which, which I think is that... Of all the, you know, pitfalls and mistakes they made with Lane's char- character arc in seasons five through seven, that I really did enjoy how <laughs> the, the exchange student becomes a rebel just like Lane was. Yeah, I love that. Passing on the torch kind of. <laughs> yeah. Um. So then another super heartbreaking moment in this episode is when Kim, uh, Kim Lane sneaks back into the house um, and sees mrs like looks at mrs kim sleeping and she gives her a little kiss and i was a puddle on the floor yeah it's very sad it always catches me off guard in this episode i'm like oh crap that's when this happens yeah it's just the the entire thing the you know from going from playing a gig which is what you left the house to do right you left the house to be your own person to you know, drum in a band, stay up past curfew, play your gigs. So it's going from this moment of like, I'm so freaking happy we crushed that gig to then take it down a notch because everyone around you has somebody and you don't. And then going to see Mrs. Kim, who has in her mind replaced her. It's just, it's such a roller coaster of emotions for Lane in one night. And I felt for her, it was so upsetting yeah, and I think it would have been nicer if if Rory had been able to make it to the gigs, and at least she would have her best friend there. But I think it, I, I think that, I think that happened on purpose. Like you know, Rory couldn't exactly. make it, and that was the that was the only person who would have been able to come for Lane. And she's just like, wow, I'm probably never going to see my mother at one of these gigs, you know? Yes. So I think the fact that Gil has his wife. And Brian, Brian's entire family, Brian's parents came with his aunt and his weird cousin. You know what I mean? And then his mother is sitting there offering everybody carrot sticks. 
you know, I think there is this moment for Lane where she's like, my my mother is never going to be here, you know? Yeah. Um, and yes, of course, it would have been nice for Rory to come. But again, I'm with you. I think that they did that on purpose. Because I think if Rory was there to say, hey, I'm so proud of you. This is great. No, no, no. I think the whole scene afterwards where she goes to the house and reminisces and kind of, you know, thinks about her choices in life never would have happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that puts a little bow on Lane's story for this episode. Um, I want to talk about, let's talk about Asher Fleming and Rory and then leave the big stuff for the end. Okay. Cause I want to know what you mean by Rory doesn't have, or you wouldn't have the balls that Rory had in this conversation. Okay. So here's what I mean. <laughs> um, let's start with the fact that, Asher Fleming, who hasn't made an appearance in a while, we're finally seeing him. He's doing a book signing and a book reading at the Yale bookstore, and Paris presumably invites Rory. And Paris is sitting there in her seat, preening like a proud girlfriend. And, um, you know, Paris shows Rory the dedication in the book to a wise, wonderful woman, whatever. And uh, Rory's like, it's not very specific. <laughs> <laughs> and Paris is like, but I know it's me. And I'm just like, Paris, come on. <laughs> I know. It's kind of like I want to be happy for her because she I think she is in some in some form or other, she is happy, but like I definitely I, think she's happy. But at what cost? <laughs> yeah, I think so I think in situations like these where there's a giant power dynamic. Mm-hmm. And you're probably doing something you're not supposed to be doing and dating your professor. Um, I've never doubted that these girls or these younger, I should say younger people in the power dynamic. um, I've never doubted that they're happy to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. But then, like you said, at what cost? Because in this episode, we really see Paris driving herself insane a little bit. Yes, and I find she goes even more insane after, uh, spoil- spoilies, after Asher dies. She goes even more Yeah, like- well, that's for sure. But, I mean, in this episode, it's really the start of, we've moved from, Paris is really, um, well, maybe it started on spring break when she was kind of waiting for a call that never came. Yeah. And because the call never came, up until that point, it was like probably roses and she's waiting for a call and she was hoping that he would invite her to the conference, but he didn't. And then like maybe now she's getting a little bit more clingy because she didn't have what she wanted in that episode. But I think in this episode, so I never doubted that Paris was happy in her own little way. Yeah. But from everything we find out from Doyle. So Doyle says that every year, Professor Fleming, it's a pattern with him. He dates a younger woman. He dates an undergrad. Um, and the fact that it's known around campus, um, is also kind of troubling, I find. (laughs) Yeah, like, I think we're made, I think the writers wrote that line of Joyle's on purpose, and it was poignant, as you said before. I think that's the general theme of this episode, is poignant, um, because I think that line of Joyle's was, was made to make the audience feel immediately uh like have pity for Paris almost immediately after he says that it's like oh he she like he doesn't really actually care about her this is what he, this is just what he does yes and i 
Like, I don't I don't really like having those feelings for Paris because she's not the kind of character that conjures the image of someone who I'm not going to say someone who would do that or who would fall for that. But like someone who would be ta- someone who would like be taken advantage of in that way. And not to say like she let herself do that. Though. She, like she let, she let her guard down, not to like victim blame in any way, shape or form. We're not here for that. Um, I think I just I feel bad because like Paris also deserved better in a different way than Lane like Paris has deserved better in this case yeah no I okay so with Doyle's line I definitely agree it's meant to kind of make the audience feel yes bad for Paris but I think it also shifts this from something that Paris pursued and like because we've always kind of gotten the impression that she knows what she's doing, right? She pursued this. She keeps saying she's happy, you know, like she's fine being the secret and na na na. But then I find after Paris, after Doyle's little speech to Rory, I find it's kind of shifting the dynamic a little bit where you feel like Paris is really in control. Yeah. To Paris is t- being taken advantage of. Or maybe not taken advantage of in the traditional sense, but this is not new for him, right? I think maybe Paris is just, to this point, we're all thinking like, all right, Paris is dating a professor, shit happens, sometimes you fall for an older man, whatever. But then we realize, like, this is not new for him. No, exactly. He's like, there's 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 another added layer of Paris being a vulnerable young woman, regardless of how strong and how witty, sassy, bitchy bitter Paris can be for all for all that we love her for Paris is a vulnerable young person that is just a fact and Asher Fleming is an older man who is taking advantage of a vulnerable young woman and that is non-negotiable in my opinion and I wanted to say like something that really after Doyle's speech something that really um smacked me in the face (laughs) should I say, is that I want everybody to remember how we started this season. Mm-hmm. We started this season with Paris moving to Yale with a life coach. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm being serious. Like, I know it's hilarious because we haven't heard from Terrence since. But, like, we've started this season with Paris coming to Yale in a very vulnerable position, needing a life coach slash therapist, whatever, talking about doing emotional homework. Yes. You know, like having a crafts corner to calm down. You know what I mean? So like, it's hard to see her then as the assertive Paris that we all know and love, because of course that layer is still there. Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind. But don't forget that Paris was not in a good place when she came to Yale. Exactly. So like you can't you, you you can't argue like you can't like you can't not think or t- like you can't not think that Asher is, is not taking advantage of that vulnerability because it like it wasn't that long ago like it's only been however many months since Paris and Rory started Yale together and it's like and she's like the old Paris would have been annoyed by your tendency to linger or whatever she said yeah, and yeah. <laughs> if we compare you know the old Paris to the Paris we see like on spring break like okay so the old Paris is still very much here the new Paris was an illusion but like that is like the surface level kind of joke where it's like oh the new Paris the old Paris whatever that's just kind of like a a funny 
comedic thing, but then beneath the surface there it does go deeper, like you said, where she was not in a good place coming to Yale. She needed craft corner emotional homework. She needed a life right. coach, whatever happened to him. <laughs> um, like she needed all these things for like that were fundamental to her own well being. So you can't tell me she wasn't in a vulnerable position that a older man took advantage of. Like that's that to me is the crucial aspect of this power dynamic. Like she was in a vulnerable place and you can't tell me you can't not tell me that he wasn't he didn't see that he didn't sense that and was like "Mm, pounce yeah no i think there's a reason in these relationships that older men go for undergrads right um they go for women who are not as sure of themselves Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that we've now found out it's a pattern for him and every year there's a new gal, you can't help but feeling like, fuck this guy, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and look, there's no doubt in my mind that Paris wanted this for sure. Yeah. Um, and to some extent, every person that has probably been in this dynamic wants it to a certain extent. But these people know what they're doing, meaning yeah. the perpetrators. The, the powerful people, um, they know what they're doing. They definitely have a type, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, Paris wasn't in a good place. And it's, 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 the crazy in Paris is kind of coming out in this episode because, you know, she's getting jealous of these girls hovering around him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's insulting them. Um, and being judgmental, like she didn't do the exact same thing to get his attention, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, and I feel like that's what that's what being in this type of relationship is like. Yeah, uh, for sure. You know, you're being gaslit sometimes, and you're meant to feel like they give you just enough to make you feel like you're the only one. Mm-hmm. But yet you were attracted to their power to begin with, so they obviously show that power to other people, right? Yeah, and I think there's a reason we also didn't we also didn't see very many, if any, um, scenes of Paris and Asher alone, because I think yeah. that would have been a little too difficult to write in the you know dramedy Gilmore Girls WB style. I think it would have been a little not even difficult doesn't even cover it. Would it just would have been inappropriate? I think at the yeah, time. Yeah, I think I think the writers knew what they were doing with never crossing that line. Mm-hmm. So they gave us just enough to make it seem like Paris is still in control. But when she starts unraveling and we start hearing different things, it's very much, I think the audience is very much made to feel like this is clearly not okay, no matter how much we love Paris and she's kooky. It's not okay. Um, yeah. And you're right. I think they never cross that line because it's just the nature of the show and they wouldn't have been able to write it in a way in that fun-loving Gilmore Girls way that we know and love, mm-hmm. because there's no really appropriate way to write a scene like that where you don't come away from it thinking, gross. You know what I mean? Yeah. By the way, the last time we discussed this, I said I didn't think it was a kind of My Dark Vanessa kind of situation. But I think now I'm going to take that back and say that this is like My Dark Vanessa. And if you don't know what that is, that was a book that came out last year by um, Kate Elizabeth Russell. And if you haven't read it, in light of uh, season four of Gilmore Girls, I would definitely recommend it. It's uh, a bit dark, as the title suggests, but it does shine... (laughs) It does shine uh, a necessary light 
on the uh, lifelong consequences this kind of relationship can have for a woman. So if you haven't read that, I will uh, post it on our Instagram story so you can uh, check that out. RIP to all of your TBR lists, by the way. Yeah, I know. We keep doing that to you, but I don't give a fuck. If I have to read, <laughs> you have to read. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, so then um, the final scene with Asher in it is it involves Rory. So Rory at the beginning of the episode tells Lorelai that she handed in a paper and she's not feeling good about it, which we've all been there, Rory, let's be honest. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So she handed in this paper. She doesn't feel like she did very well. Lorelai's like, you're probably exaggerating. Paris says the same thing. You're probably exaggerating. And the paper is in Professor Fleming's class. So Rory goes to go pick up her paper. She sees that she got an A after, mm-hmm. you know, after saying that, she really didn't think it went well. She gets an A, much to her surprise. And then later in Professor Fleming's class, he says, oh, Miss Gilmore, great job on your paper. I really loved it. And Rory sticks around. And this is where I say it's really un- uncharacteristic for Rory. Um, but, you know, maybe she's growing in college. Uh, decides to confront him. Mm-hmm. And basically say, listen, I just want to make sure I got an A because I deserve the A and not because I know Paris. Yeah. And he gets offended. Which, by the way, you're getting offended because you know you're doing something wrong, you jackass. (laughs) Yes, for sure. You know what I mean? Like, sorry somebody called you out on your creepy old man behavior. Um, But the, the thing for me was I... I wasn't expecting her to bring up Paris. Mm -hmm. Like, it's one thing to say, I just want to make sure that I really got an A. Like, it would be one thing to say to him, like, oh, you know, I really wasn't sure about my paper when I gave it in. And then you gave me an A. It's like, do you want to like, it would be different for her to say, like, let's discuss that aspect of it. Yeah. Like accusatory right away. Where, like, questioning his integrity. And I do really think that the conversation she had with Doyle played a part in that. Yes, for sure. Like, I she... don't think that pre-conversation, she was just going off of Paris's word, right? Yeah. She was like, you know, I just want you to, she was telling Paris, I just want you to be happy. If you're happy, I'm happy, you know, but just don't mention me, whatever. So I really don't think that if she hadn't had that conversation with Doyle, she would have said that. But then when she starts to realize that this is a pattern with him and Paris is not the first young girl that he's done this to, mm-hmm. I think she's starting to question a little bit, maybe not his motives, but just his ways in general. Yeah. Like if you're as slimy as, you know, if you stoop that low to date a student at at a very vulnerable point in her life like giving someone an a who didn't deserve it that's nothing for you you know what i mean yeah personally i would have been like take the fucking a and go (laughs) because how often did i get an a on a paper not really very often Mm um but i think that's new for rory off topic, well, not really off topic, but like since you said how, how often have I gotten an A on a paper, I found that the only time that I really started getting like consistent 
A range marks on my papers was when like the pandemic started and everyone was doing school from home. So I'm like, is this really is this like an actual A or is this like the teacher being like, yeah, okay, cool, A next. <laughs> oh my god, I remember the first time I got an A on a paper in university. Mm-hmm. It was a professor I had already had for two other classes. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed her classes. I'm not gonna lie, she was a little odd, but I really enjoyed her classes. And I remember, like, putting my heart and soul into that paper. But at the university I went to, it's notoriously hard to get an A on a paper. Uh, um, just because, <laughs> sorry? Ah, uh, yes, I know. <laughs> no, it's because of the grade point average. So A's in at my university was anywhere between an 85 and 100 mm-hmm. because we didn't have an A+. Plus. So, oh, interesting. yeah, so it was, so professors for papers, um, you know, wouldn't usually give A's unless it was crazy good. You know what I mean? So yeah. I remember going to pick up my paper and her rifling through all the papers to find my name. And she gets to my paper and I swear to God, Jeffrey, even she looks surprised that she gave me a name. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. Bye. I snatched it and I left before she could change her mind. <laughs> but it was so funny. Um, Yeah, I don't think Rory... And then the part that for me with Rory that I think is out of character um, is the part at the end where she says the redhead has fat thighs. Yeah. Um, that didn't need to be said, Rory. <laughs> no, that's that's a bit of a the the same discussion we had in response to her uh, her review of the the ballet. Yeah, so not only is I is it, I think, uh, body shaming, mm-hmm. because, by the way, the redhead, there was nothing wrong with you. <laughs> um, wherever you are, extra, there was nothing wrong with you. Um, but even in, just in the context of, you know, you already said to him, I hope you're giving me the grade because I deserved it and not because I know Paris. Like, you made your point. Mm-hmm. You don't need to then add on the fact that I'm on to you. I know what you do. Yeah, like it's... Don't get me wrong, I love that she did it, but in the context of, like, you don't want to piss off your professor? Yeah, like, I see what you mean now. Like, I think if she, maybe if she... Maybe if it was, like, the end of the the end of the semester, like, not taking you again, got nothing to lose kind of situation, Yeah. I would see... Like, I would kind of... I'm not saying I don't support what she said. Like, I agree with what, I agree with what you said. Um, that it needed to, It needed to be put out in the universe. But I think I definitely agree that it was risky to say that outwardly to your team. Like, even though it's wrong and we kind of like I kind of don't want to make it seem like you need to not say that because, you know, elders or whatever generational crap you want to spin. But like just in terms of a man is doing something gross and it's not. I'm going to say it's not Rory's place to say anything, but it's like, if she doesn't say anything, who will, you know? So I, it's, yeah, it is, but I do agree that it is out of character for her to insert that little tidbit. Yeah. And maybe, listen, it could be that maybe she got to her breaking point too. Like mm-hmm. that part of her that's very protective of Paris kind of came out and she was, saying to herself, well, I'm going to stick up for my friend in this situation. Yeah. Um, and maybe part of her was just like, fuck old white men. 
Yeah, exactly. Like maybe she just, like had already been to the to the the book signing, had talked to Doyle, had seen how like, um, you know, for lack of a better term, how nutty Paris was getting over the fact that other girls find him attractive, apparently. Which okay. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, I okay. don't see it. I don't think he has a particularly very nice speaking voice. Dar- um, darlings, he's not a dilf. Okay, just don't. <laughs> definitely not. Okay, guys. So I, yeah, I can see maybe like Rory had just gathered enough evidence of like enough observations with her own two eyes of like, this is ugh, and she had the chance to say something and she did. Yeah, I definitely think you're right, though. I think seeing how nutty Perry was, Perry, Perry, (laughs) Paris was getting, uh, Perry's my brother's name, by the way. (laughs) I think, yeah, I think seeing how, um, how Paris was starting to unravel a little bit that protective side of her came out and was like, yo, I'm just going to say something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I do think it's still very um, not in character for her, but yeah, I'm glad she said it. You know, yeah, it was she, definitely a ballsy move, but it still needed to happen. No, for sure. Like, cause you, you get the sense with Asher that um, like it is with a lot of these white powerful men that nobody's ever told them off mm-hmm. even in a subtle way. Or even pointed to the fact that what they're doing is wrong. Like Doyle says that every year he picks another girl. And we all know who the girl is. So clearly it's not a really well-kept secret, right? Yeah. Uh, So the reason they keep doing it is because they keep getting away with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, And and again, to me, the fact that he got so offended was not because she was um, questioning his integrity as a professor. To me, he got very offended because someone was finally calling him out on his creepy behavior. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, if you ha- if you got that upset, you know you're being a douche. Yeah, and I think we definitely saw in the last few years with the rise of the Me Too and Time's Up movements that, like you said, um, men weren't and still aren't used to having this behavior called out. And especially yeah. now having all of it aired in a public forum slash arena so i think so consider it in 2004 but you know when it was not uh there wasn't a cultural um movement slash what's the word i'm looking for like uproar against against that kind of behavior so just think like that's what kills me whenever i think of all the times that people like women in particular were risk like risking a lot by speaking out against their abusers and that people made it out to seem like they were, you know, again, victim blaming, but like making it out to seem like they were either doing it for attention or whatever garbage people said at the time. It's just like, no, uh, women are putting a lot on the line to speak out against these men because A, they have all the power, unfortunately, and B, like, they're not used to being called out in this way, so you don't know, you don't know how they're going to react. They could, yeah. you know, you don't know you don't know what could happen. You're you're putting a lot on the line by calling them out either in public or in private. Like it's it's very uh, it's a loaded it's a loaded topic. <laughs> yeah, and I know I know at the beginning of this season I said that I don't understand why Amy Sherman Palladino would go down this route with Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it for me. And look, I'm not going to say that I still there's still a lot of unknown for me. I don't know what the motive behind writing a storyline like this was. Um, But sometimes like the more we discuss it, the more I watch it. And again, I I don't know what her motives were. 
but it just seemed hard to me in the beginning when they first introduced the storyline. It seemed a little out of place because, like we said earlier, it is hard to write a storyline like this where it's very light and fluffy. Yeah. At at its core, this is a very touchy subject. Exactly. Because of that power dynamic and that power imbalance. Um and again, I think, like you said, that's why we didn't see a lot of their relationship together alone. Mm-hmm. That's going to change next episode, but whatever. We won't talk about that yet. Um, and so I would really be interested to know what the motivation behind introducing this storyline was in the first place. Because if it was meant as a commentary on... I don't know, college life or, you know, like shit happens in college um, because this is not a rare occurrence, by the way. <laughs> um, I I don't, I don't know if it was that. I don't know if it was to prove to us how vulnerable Paris really was going into college and how that was such a shift from the strong, assertive, confident woman she was in high school. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have to say I'm glad they didn't take it to a place that kind of made me uncomfortable because I'm uncomfortable enough as it is. Yeah. Um, even with it playing a lot off screen. Mm-hmm. But it's just it. I would all to say that I would be really interested to know what the motivation behind it was. Um, and maybe somebody knows. Maybe an insider knows. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, do, you think, do you think at this point Amy Sharon Paladino would come on our podcast? <laughs> no. Absolutely not. <laughs> I think we I think we roast her too much, honestly. <laughs> I don't roast her to roast her. Like I'm, I in the process of analyzing a show. By the way, we've said so many times she's a genius. Yeah, we have. Like, honestly, for as for as much as we as we you know shit on her sometimes, we we admire and applaud her her creative style. But here's the thing. I don't shit on her just to shit on her as a human. I don't know her as a human. <laughs> shit on the choices that she made with my show. <laughs> my choices. favorite show. <laughs> you know? And by the way, like, I can shit on any creator of a show. But the beauty of it, it's their show. They can do whatever they want with it. They don't give a fuck. Yeah. Um, so that's to say, like, all that to say, like, I don't shit on Amy Sherman Palladino to shit on Amy Sherman Palladino. Um, say that three times fast. No, I can't. I can't even say it one time slow. Um, but yeah it was just it was for me it's something that I I kind of struggled with I remember the first time watching the season Mm -hmm. um because I didn't understand how someone like Paris I guess could be taken advantage of and maybe that was kind of victim blaming on my part in 2004 but don't forget in 2004 I was like 12 I was gonna say, wouldn't you be? Wouldn't you been in like in grade six when season four was on? I was eleven in two thousand four. Okay. Oh, so. <laughs> I hate doing math. I well, was twelve. Well, because you you told me you graduated high school in two thousand nine, so that would have put you grade six in two thousand three, two thousand four, right? Yeah, I was born in ninety two. If anyone wants to. Know. <laughs> uh. Anyways, so I would I would have turned um I was eleven when this was airing. Okay, so like you, you like you were a child, a literal child when you watched this live. So like you, your perception of it, I'm guessing, like it was. I don't think it was painted out to be like this. I don't think they were endorsing or promoting 
Yeah. No, absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. No, but I think like it. It also, but it was also not really painted so much as a cautionary tale. Like obviously they they portrayed the doubt and the wariness of all the other characters of this relationship that Paris had, but I don't think they went far enough to make it out to be like a seventh heaven kind of cautionary tale. You know? Yeah, but the thing is, so you aptly pointed out that I was 11. I was a literal child when this aired. Um, I remember being mad at Paris. Okay, yeah, that would make sense. Cause like not like not to victim blame, but like you, she, like she made she made that conscious choice, whatever for whatever reason. Yeah, and I just remember being like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Without giving him a second thought. <laughs> maybe it wasn't victim blaming because I didn't have the the depth to do that yet. But it was very much misguided. And I think that's the problem when you're so young and you watch a nuanced um, storyline like this. Mm -hmm. I mean, because now I would say, no, there's no nuance whatsoever. He's a dick and he's taking advantage of her Um, as much as maybe she wants to pursue this relationship. But the problem is with watching shows that are probably beyond your years sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, I think. I think also there's a perception that because there's no sex in a show, like it's safe for kids to watch. Yeah. And I'm not to say that it was unsafe for me to watch it at 11. Like, but you know, sometimes storylines can be just as harmful mm -hmm. than like explicit sex scenes or like swearing or whatnot, you know? So, um, I don't know as much as it was portrayed as a family show, I think the, the real danger of it is watching this as a 10 or 11 year old and being like, that's totally normal. Yeah. Like, I don't like, that's what I mean. Like, I think it was a very touchy subject for them to take on in the, the, in their writing style and on a family network like the WB, I think, like, I don't, I think they just towed the line between like inappropriate and cautionary tale. I think like they just stayed, they tried to stay neutral as possible, as, as neutral as possible with it. And only now years later, as we analyze deeper as adults, we think like, was this the right decision, the right direction to take this character? Yeah, I feel like there's, if you want to show that a character is out of her depth in a new setting and like make her relatable to all these people that are maybe leaving high school and going to college, there are a million and one different ways to do that without having an inappropriate relationship involved. <laughs> you know what I mean? For sure. Um, so maybe hit and miss, but like I said, maybe there was a bigger motivation behind it that we just don't understand. Yes. By the way, in case someone was wondering, since Eleni said when she was born, I was born in 97, so she's five years older than me. Oh, uh, don't fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, as I like to say, whenever whenever anyone asks how old I am, I'm like, you know what? Just don't hold it against me because I can't I can't ever use the term that was that was before my time with anybody in my family because they're like, um, what's your excuse? You've seen like thousands of things like old shows, old movies from light years before you were born. So I I can't ever use that that excuse because I've you know just because I've I'm I'm however old I am like I've seen a lot of things from past. Uh, decades so people don't accept that response from me but sometimes that was just that was just before my time <laughs> okay are you done i'm done <laughs> see okay. she, she can't let me talk about myself she has to interrupt me she has to cut me off she needs a toxic relationship here you heard it first oh shut up <laughs> little shit all right let's move on to 
the Gilmores and Jason and this whole situation that went from bad to worse in a week. Yeah. So Jason finds out through making a bunch of calls to his clients that Richard made the deal behind his back, took the client, all his clients, including the ones that he brought in and the ones that he made since, and basically left him with nothing. And so he goes to Lorelai to tell him that, and Lorelai is kind of in disbelief. No, my father wouldn't do that. He loves you, blah, blah, blah. Um, then Lorelai goes to Richard to confront him because I think, like we said earlier, she's realizing, oh, fuck, there are yeah. actual consequences here. And part of me kind of thinks that maybe she, in her mind, she's thinking she can reason with her with Richard. I don't know why she thinks that. It's never worked before. Mm-hmm. But she does go to Richard's and asks him why he's doing that. And to be fair to Richard, he doesn't seem to be okay with the decision. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think he's, while he wouldn't take it back because he knows that it needed to be done, at least in his mind, to protect his family, mm-hmm. he doesn't feel good about it. Because like I said earlier, I think he really does love Jason. Yeah, but at this point, like, I understand, like, I kind of, I understand both sides, obviously, and I think Lorelai is coming from the position of, she obviously loves her parents in her way, and she, I would argue she loves Jason, so I think she's trying to play, like, intermediary, but also without, without considering the real stakes of the situation, because she's not in it, like, she's not it's not her business like it's obviously her like it's her family's business and that thereby makes it somewhat her business but it's not like her 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 own business venture is what i mean so she's i think she's just trying to like keep the pieces in you know like whenever you know like you know what i mean like in any time like two family members for example have some kind of beef and you're not in it so you can't really comment on it but you just want to like make sure everyone is just like people try to play like peacemaker and it's doesn't work yeah. so I think Lorelai is kind of assuming assuming that role in this in this situation and it I think that's what kind of snaps her into reality and she's like oh like oh crap first of all I have to act like a grown mature adult yeah and second she's like I know like I know that I care about my family enough to put them first I think that's I think that's the realization she comes to is that she spent so long running running from the Gilmore name and the Gilmore I don't know fortune the Gilmore dynasty and she, Life, yeah. <laughs> um, and she realizes now like when push comes to shove because push is coming to shove um she has to make a choice and I think she makes the right one ultimately yeah so I think there's two things going on here um I think when she goes to confront Richard it's very much to make him see the error in his ways and be like, this is not you. You've left him with nothing. Um, You know, like not only has he taken the business, all his clients, Jason's talking about the fact that he's bad mouthing him around town. His reputation has taken a hit. He doesn't know if he's going to be able to work in Connecticut anymore, basically, you know? So I think for me, the first, so the original confrontation between her and, 
Richard is her saying like, what the fuck are you doing? You know? And I think for her also, it's like when she, when she tells Jason, no, my father wouldn't do that because I think for her, it really is a shock that he's done this because she knows him as a man of integrity. Right. Mm. Um, in her mind, of course, he wouldn't go around bad-mouthing this guy that he went into business. You know what I mean? For a, for a company that sold him out. You know, so I think there's so much going on in her head right now where she's just trying to understand her father. And then when Richard gives these kind of blasé answers where she's saying, you know, like, he's talking about moving. And he's like, so? Yeah. And... Maybe Richard in that moment is like, well, fuck, this is my daughter and she's not taking my side. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, do you not understand that what you've done has like insane consequences for this guy who did nothing to you? Yeah, I don't think I like I think in some in some regard, like obviously Lorelai was trying to make it easy for her to then side with Jason. Like she was trying to like smooth smooth things over with her father so that she could then side with her boyfriend. But I don't think that was her main goal. I think her main goal was to, like, try to cease fire on both ends. Yeah. And then, and then like I said before, Richard kind of snaps her into focus of, like, no, no, this is serious. This is this is my family's life savings. Your family's life savings are on the line here. It's not a matter of, you know, just let it go. And that's when Richard makes the comment about how, of course, you're siding with your boyfriend. I would never expect you i would never expect any less of you um, which is cool for him to say by the way yeah but i think like she needed to hear it i think she needed i think she needed that that reality check in this in this moment i mean so i think that her intention in going there was to say like hey this isn't you this yeah is- this is unnecessary. He said he was going to take care of it. Why don't you give him an opportunity to take care of it? Instead, you went around badmouthing him and you went crawling back to a company that pushed you out and that hates you. And then he's really trying to make her see, he's like, well, didn't you hear what Floyd said? He's going to take everything, my life savings, this house, blah, blah, blah. So he's trying to make her see like, I didn't have any other choice. Whereas she's saying, you did have a choice. You could have let him try and take care of it and then see, like, gone from there, you know? I think where Richard sees things a little bit more black and white, she sees the shades of gray. Yeah, and I think it's also her her perspective is a little more naive than his. Absolutely. No, I don't doubt that at all, right? Um, I think it's really easy when you're not in it and not scared for your livelihood to say, like, well, do the right thing. You shouldn't have done that. Um And again, I think people do really, I think people make terrible judgment calls sometimes when they're scared, right? Which is what Richard was. He was backed into a corner. Um, Now, I agree with you. I think regardless of how cruel it was, maybe, um, to say it, maybe she did need to hear it because she needed to realize what exactly was at stake. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... Um, I did think Richard was a little bit too blasé about the whole situation. Like, you've taken away a man's livelihood and you're like, so? Yeah. When when last week you were praising him and saying, like, best decision ever and you acquired Bob and you know what I mean? Like, it's just, 
I get it. I get where he's coming from. He wants to protect himself and Emily and everything, but it's just, you know, it's not great, the whole situation. Um, no, and I think, like, from a writer's point of view, I think that was that was the point. Like, it was, I don't think... Yeah. I don't think they made. They wanted us to think at the end of, at the end of last last week's episode, like, oh, everything will be fine by no. by next week. Like, I think the whole point of this was all is not fine. You have to realize. You have to realize that. Yeah. No. I think uh, I 100% agree. I think it's, you know, making the last scene last week what it was. Mm-hmm. Like, how often do we have a last scene where something major happens? You know what I mean? Um, and something major, by the way, not involving one of the two girls, you know? Oh, okay. I was going to say, uh, very often, what show are you watching? No, I mean, I mean, like, how often is the last scene not involving one of the girls? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I think absolutely the writers were meant, were meaning to say, like, this is big. This is going to have big, um, consequences. Now, I do think that at the end, when Jason says that he's suing Richard, I think it's very much a chance. It's the opportunity that Lorelai has to say there's a clear choice here and it's my family. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I think that no matter how much she loves Jason and their relationship has been going really well, you know, last couple of episodes where we've seen them together, she's making herself at home in his house. He's given her a key, um, you know, for all for all the bullshit of the last two episodes up until that point, you can't deny that their relationship was going really, really well. Yeah. Um, and I would argue it's the happiest we've seen Lorelai in a relationship since the show began. Despite um, what the fandom says. Despite what the fucking fandom says. Yes. Um, so I think that choice that she made, obviously the right one, of course, you're going to side with your family. I think for Lorelai, it's, for me at least, it was very distressing because I'm sitting there going like, fuck. (laughs) Obviously, he has to sue Richard, you know, like what he did wasn't right. But how do you, oh, poor Lorelai, because she's like, if it wasn't for this, they can just continue on with the relationship. You know what I mean? Like, they didn't break up because of something that either one of them did. The, The relationship was going so well. Mm-hmm. And now you're like, well, I can't be with somebody who's suing my family, which you can't. Yeah. But it's just like, you know how hard it is to be like, we broke up through no fault of our own. Yeah, I know. If I may, if I may share what I wrote in my notes in regards to Lorelai's behavior in this episode, I said, <laughs> Lorelai Gilmore acting like a grown, mature adult in this economy. Like, <laughs> I just, <laughs> I just think that it's such it's such a like complete divide from the Lorelai of the earlier seasons who you know just like if we think back to when she got engaged to Max or when you know even when the inn burned like when the Independence Inn burned down in season three like even if we compare her reaction to this to that like she's grown so much and over these last four seasons, obviously, as you would hope for a show of this magnitude, your char- the characters would grow. So I think it's as much as I think a lot of this episode is filler, even though we've, you know, we've added some some depth to the filler in this episode. I think 
Lorelai just has a full circle epiphany where she's like, oh, crap. She's like, <laughs> like adult life just got real. I have to make a, I have to make a choice. And I think, I think it's, it's just, it's really good writing in the, in, with their, the last scene between Lorelai and Jason, because like both their hands are tied, you know, Jason, yeah. like, I don't like, I don't begrudge Jason whatsoever for suing Richard. Like, he like it's his business it's his livelihood he's put however many years of his professional life into this business you know he can't not fight for it like what's the oh, like i don't like i if it were me like let's say, let's say i was dating jason like i would not it would be different too obviously but like if i if i was in that position of you know being his partner like i would not be like i would want him to fight like i would not i think i would lose respect for him if if he said you know what i'm just going to fold like that to me is not what I'd want a person who I'm dating to, that's not, I'm not attracted to that. Let's just say that. So like, I would be more attracted to someone who would, what? <laughs> no. And I, and I think that's also where the dilemma comes in for Lorelai too, because she knows he has no choice. Yeah. Right? So like, her, so her hands are tied too. Like she knows she, she, she doesn't really begrudge him that like, she knows yeah. that's, he, that's his only choice is he has to fight for it. Cause he, he's not going to fold. That's not who he is. But also that then ties her hands because she makes the choice in that moment without even hesitating. No, not even a moment to blink. She's like, I can't be with someone who's suing my family. So like, yeah. see ya. <laughs> yeah, and I agree with you. I think it is. Um, I think it's so much emotional growth for her. Just yeah. the difference between how, like, remember in season two when she goes to confront Emily about her not being happy for her engagement. Oh, yes. And then, like, you know, playing, not playing the victim, but so much, like, saying, like, why can't you be happy for me? And then not being able to admit that she did something wrong. Yeah. Not telling Emily, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And right away going, well, this is just how it is with my parents. I don't think that Lorelai would have made the same decision as season four Lorelai. Exactly. That's why it's it's it's, a, it's such a sharp divide, and it's it's actually quite remarkable if you think about it. All the times we've said, you know, Lorelai just grow up. Like <laughs> all the times we've we've bitched about Lorelai and her stupid immature bullshit. I think it all comes down to this episode where she makes a mature grown up choice. <laughs> yeah, because part of me thinks that season one and season two Lorelai would have carried on dating Jason as spite, maybe. Maybe not spite, but maybe like she would have. Factor. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. But I think maybe like earlier seasons, ver- the earlier seasons version of Lorelai would have like would have carried on with Jason and acted like it, it it wasn't that deep. Like would have acted like it's not like it's not my problem. Like it's that's between you guys. Like that kind yeah. of like immature shrug it off attitude. Whereas now she's like, no, no, this does involve me. I'm and I, I think. Yeah, exactly. I don't, and I think it's also important to note what Emily said, but to Richard right before the final scene between Lorelai and Jason is that, are you sure you really, are sure you really want to do this? Like we just got, we we spent all this time getting Lorelai back into this house, back into our lives. Um, do we really want to do anything to drive her away? She might take Rory with her. That like, and I think it's it's telling, obviously that. We, we see that perspective because that's obviously a question because we've seen Lorelai turn on her parents and run away before. And I think she we then see like how much she has grown because just one scene later, it's like 
I can't be with someone who's suing my family. And that's yeah. She chose. She, think, given the given the choice between Emily and Richard and Jason, she chose Emily and Richard. Yeah, and I think Emily's anxiety about not. I think Emily's anxiety surrounding Lorelai leaving the family is because leaving the family. You know what I mean? I think it's her also remembering and having that opinion that we have about Lorelai of, you know, she's not going to take our side. Yeah. Uh, You know, she's never taken our side. Why would she take our side? I don't want to lose her. But, you know, have a little faith, Emily. She chose you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, and the last thing I want to talk about is the dinner from hell. Um, oh, dear. I was, all of this talk about Lorelai's growth, I forgot all about that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's um, you know. <laughs> Rory and Lorelai show up for Friday night dinner, and Lorelai really doesn't want to go because it's after her argument with her father. Rory convinces her, you know, like, I'll be a buffer. Don't worry about it. And they get get there a little early because there's no traffic which they repeat 18 times um (laughs) only to find out well things are really weird in the gilmore house emily's not there she says she went to the store to get something richard's unprepared um you know like dinner served nobody's ready there's no dessert they just kick them out like it's all very odd and so lorelei Lorelai's antenna immediately go up and Rory's just like, well, you know, maybe blah, 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 blah. Shut up, Rory. Um, (laughs) And then come to find out that Emily Gilmore is not staying at the house anymore. She has checked herself into a hotel. Mm -hmm. And I mean, at this point, it's odd to me that this was the thing that did this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. Because I just picture, like, after Emily, or maybe it's not odd, actually, now that I think about it, because Emily is coming from the perspective of, I don't want to lose, she's telling Richard, I don't want to lose Lorelai. Is this the wisest thing to do? And he kind of brushes her off and says, like, it needs to be done. So maybe in Emily's mind, she's like, well, he doesn't care if we lose our daughter after just getting her back. And that's what did it for her. Yeah. It's it's hard, still hard to say, I think. I know, it's hard to say because, like we said, how much does Emily have to take? She's been through a lot this year. Um, She's been through a lot in terms of Richard dismissing her, um, you know, sometimes even insulting her in his very passive-aggressive way, to finding out that he lied to her multiple times about having dinner with another woman, but also the fact that his mother sent him this letter... Um, you know, having to be his rock when he couldn't be hers. Um, She's been through a lot this year. So it's really hard to say what did it for her. All of the above. Yeah, I think, but I think, yeah, the more I think about it, it it could be everything. But maybe it was the fact that he he seemed so dismissive of her when she said, I don't want to lose Lorelai and I don't want to lose Rory. And he's just like, well, I'm doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, but again, it could just be that he, like, the fact that she just keeps remembering how dismissive he is, you know? Yeah. Um, all that to say that I think we could have all seen it coming mm-hmm. because they haven't been their usual selves in season four. 
But I think if you're watching it for the first time, it is a very weird thing to see. Yeah. Do you remember watching it for the first time? Yeah, this one I was like, I think I was like surprised they actually, you know, end up separating, obviously. Spoilies! Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously it's implied here. That's what's happening. Um, I remember being like surprised, but then once I thought about it for a second, I'm like, yeah, no, makes like <laughs> makes yeah. sense. I think especially given everything that happens. Yeah, and I think the surprise comes more from the fact that you don't expect this blue blood, um, conservative, family, powerful family to believe in separation or divorce. You know what I mean? Like, because they've always kind of been very um, traditional. So, like, you know, like, even when they were telling Lorelai, like, you have to get married because you got pregnant, you don't expect these type of people to, to, to divorce, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I think that's where the surprise comes in. But in terms of the reasons for wanting a separation or a divorce, you're not surprised by those, really. No, I think, honestly. <laughs> I was get out of there. <laughs> yeah, that. But also, like, their separation is... Uh, again jumping ahead their separation is only slightly separated like like Richard lives in the pool house and I'm like they left the property yeah well we don't know that yet okay sorry spoilies right now now, all we know is that she's staying in a hotel that's it okay Mm -hmm. (laughs) no but I get it I get what you're saying Anything else you wanted to talk about in this episode? Um, I had a point about Suki, but it was just because she was in that one scene where she's in the kitchen and she's uh, done something to her foot, not broken it, but she's done, she's hurt herself and she makes a comment right. about how she's back, like she's back in the kitchen. And I thought to myself, you know what, it's this Suki that I can get behind, but the one who's always klutzy and knocking and like making a mess, but is a, apparently an ingenious chef. I can t- I, I, I like that Suki much more than the one who is an annoyance. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. And I think um, it's really the first time since maybe season two that we see that Suki. Um, and unfortunately, because we know obviously how for the millionth time, we know for a fact the skills that Melissa McCarthy possesses as an actress. But I, I think in this case, in this role, she, she just excels the most as the quirky, uh, clumsy, comedic relief. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we haven't seen that side of her since season two. Exactly. They tried, like we said, they tried to maybe go deeper with her story and they lost us along the way because they weren't as invested as we would have liked them to be. Yeah. But... Um, this, yeah, I agree with you. This Suki we can get behind. <laughs> Anything I else? I think that's it. I think uh, we've covered all the bases for uh, After Boom. After Boom. Where can they find us, Jeffrey? Um, they can follow us on Instagram at Gilmore Girls Podcast, on Twitter at Gilmore Podcast, and you can email us if you pl- if you want to, gilmorepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also review us on Apple Podcasts. Um, you can, uh, good or bad, we just love reading them. It's hilarious. <laughs> yes, please roast us if you must. <laughs> roast us. And that is all for this week. We'll see you next time. <laughs>